If you would this morning turn with me to the book of Mark, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 35. Mark 3, beginning at verse 22. I don't know if you have noticed around you, but 21st century America has become quite a conglomeration of beliefs, attitudes, lifestyles, positions on anything ranging from day-to-day life to even views on eternity. In a sense, we are now in a very noisy time. So should we take a stand on anything? Should we trust anything or anybody? There are many people who come to me and say, I don't trust anything or anybody. But should we? Follow along as I read Mark chapter 3. Verses 22 through 35 about trusting in Jesus. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. As we consider this reading of God's word, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, grant us understanding from this word. Grant us ears to hear it and hearts to understand it, that by your spirit we might believe and we might obey. Father, I pray that the words that I speak might be consistent with your own, the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts as well. And Lord, if they are not, that they will not be passed on to the next generation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might ask the question, who are these scribes coming down from Jerusalem? Before we get to that answer, I want to draw your attention to something you've all perhaps heard about in the news over the last few years. We've had some pretty famous, or some pretty infamous, you might say, special prosecutors or fact-friendly missions on both sides of the political aisle over the last few years. Now, some of these folks, I think, really have been impartial men or women looking for truth. But let's be honest. Some of these may be partisan politicians looking for evidence to justify their preconceived opinions and theories. In fact, 
Our country, although it's built on a justice system that says innocent until proven guilty, now appears to be, in some cases, guilty until proven innocent. And it goes on all sides, in all positions, in all aisles. We come so often with preconceived ideas about other people, don't we? And people have done the same thing, not just about politicians or political viewpoints or celebrities or whoever it might be, or even our families or our neighbors or our bosses or whoever it might be, but people also come with preconceived ideas about Jesus. That is the problem with these scribes coming down from Jerusalem. Apparently, this was a fact-finding mission. In other words, the Sanhedrin likely were those who sent Pharisees, scribes, and others when we combine all the Gospels and the material we have up to this point. We know that they have been watching everything that Jesus is doing in the region of Galilee, particularly in the town of Capernaum where we think these activities are taking place in this section of Scripture. They have come down in essence to find evidence to prove that this guy really is not from God. So they come to the table with a prejudice about Jesus. But like these scribes, perhaps you've come with a prejudice about who Jesus is. Or perhaps even right now, as you come to worship, you're thinking to yourself, do I really believe what the Bible says about Jesus or what this church will teach about Jesus? But these events here in Scripture... In chapters 2, 3, and following, these events and teachings should prompt us to do this, to trust Jesus Christ. Three ways. To trust the power of Christ, to trust the identity of Christ, and to trust the very word of Christ. First of all, the power of Christ. Here it is. He is evidently casting out demons. Now, from the other scriptures, the other gospels, Matthew and Luke in particular, that we see these events taking place, we understand that he has been casting out demons. In fact, one of the demons he cast out was from a man who was blind and mute. And after he cast out that demon, that man was able to to see and to speak. And so here it is, he has been... Casting out these demons, and of course we know in context here he's also been healing all kinds of people with all kinds of diseases. Great crowds have been coming to him. And here are the scribes who come as the critics. And they say these two horrible things, these claims that they have. First of all, Jesus is possessed. Here is Jesus casting out demons. And they say, he is possessed. Now, how in the world can they come to that conclusion? Well, they they obviously are denying the, the opportunity to see that he may have come from God. But they know that there's something powerful going on that they can't explain by ordinary means. And so they say, in essence, he is using the black arts. It says he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Now this term Beelzebul, we don't really know a lot about it. It's not used very many places other than in the Gospels here. 
We think it may have some relationship to a word used uh, regarding the Baal uh, of the Old Testament, particularly the, the phrase that says Baal, Lord of the Flies kind of thing, a god, a false god. But here it's an, it, basically another name for Satan. He says, by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Do you realize what they're saying? They're saying is, Jesus here represents the root of evil. And here's the context. Again, from Matthew and Luke, we get this idea that there's been, uh, Jesus has really been exercising these demons. There's been an exorcism of a blind and mute man. And it's a powerful, wonderful thing. They understand that, that most circumstances this does not happen. And here's the expression of the crowd from Matthew 12. Matthew 12 tells us both about this blind and mute man. But as he has done this, the crowd says this, can this be the son of David? So the crowd is asking the question based on the evidence of this powerful miracle. Someone who's unable to speak or see suddenly because the spirit has been cast from him is now able to speak and to see. And they look at that and they say, can this be the Messiah? Can this be someone who has come from the line of David to be the one prophesied in scriptures to restore Israel? They recognize that this powerful miracle can only come from God. And yet here is this group of scribes coming down to say the exact opposite. That no, this is evil, evil incarnate. So here you have the critics, here you have the, the context with the crowds, but who is really the cornerstone here? Well, here's what happens. Jesus called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Now, it's kind of interesting. Mark is the only one of the three gospel writers that says Jesus is speaking in parables here. It's hard for us to understand exactly what they mean by these parables. In fact, we don't see the typical parable, which is kind of a lengthy illustration or story, of, so to speak. But we also understand what these parables are for. These parables were used to destroy the shoddy logic of his enemies, particularly the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, those groups of religious leaders who were opposed to him. And he says to them, this is the parable. A kingdom, if it's divided against itself, cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. From the other Gospels, it also says a city standing uh, divided against itself will not stand. In other words, if they're not united, they're going to fall apart. Is this not true? And then he says this, verse 26, If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. In other words, he's destroying the shoddy logic of the scribes who have just described that Jesus, of course, here is possessed himself and by the prince of the Elsible, that is by Satan's power, he's casting out these demons. And he says, that's ridiculous. Even Satan, as evil as he is, even the liar that he is, 
Even with all of this, even Satan is smart enough to understand that if they start going around casting out the demons uh, to show amazing power and strength, even that will cause their kingdom to fall apart. So the parables of Christ are destroying this shoddy logic. But the other thing that is so amazing here is verse 27. He says here, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. The other, six, the other two Gospels uh, describe it in, in this way. If you look at the Matthew version, it says here, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, he, he, then indeed he may plunder his house. And then the Luke version, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, my kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, has begun to destroy the kingdom of Satan. In other words, Jesus is describing himself as the stronger man than the strong man. Isn't that wonderful? He's saying that even though Satan has great power, he's a strong individual. In the day of Jesus, we see that there are people bound by Satan, possessed by demons. There are those bound because of their sin and the guilt and shame that is upon them. They find themselves in the kingdom of Satan, unable to escape. But what does Christ do? He frees people from Satan's kingdom. First of all, he frees them in the sense that he releases them from the bondage of sin. If they place their sins on Jesus, who will go to the cross for them, then they will be free from the consequences of their sin. But secondly, he's also freeing individuals from the very real power of demon possession. And he's casting those demons out and freeing them, freeing those people from these demons. So we're reminded Satan's power is limited. Now, of course, you know, Satan's power has always been limited because God is sovereign over him, and Satan is a created creature. God is the creator. And so Satan is only permitted to do what God would allow him to do. But in this moment, Jesus is reminding them that he is stronger and that this is the beginning of the end for Satan who has come to try and establish his kingdom upon the earth. And I have to say, it comes right down to it, I bet many of us are skeptical about the power of Christ to transform life. How many of you really believe that a drug addict can stop taking drugs? How many of you believe that a chronic liar can actually start telling the truth? How many of you believe that a pedophile can stop abusing children? 
How many of you believe that someone possessed by a demon, I have to say, I think that our prisons are full of demon-possessed individuals. Our society at large has individuals who are possessed by demons. Yes, it still takes place even today. And yet, here, how many of us believe that Jesus can remove those demons, can change the hearts and lives of individuals, and truly make them a new person? This is trusting in the power of Christ to transform lives and exercise demons. This is what scripture says Jesus can do. But are we the skeptics of the scribes? Remember, these skeptics weren't those atheists out there, those pagans from other nations who never had the word of God. These skeptics were the people who knew God's Old Testament. They knew the law. They had the word. They had religious practice. They were pious people. But they did not trust that Jesus was the Christ. We are called to trust the power of Christ to change us and to transform us and to rescue us from the consequences of our sin. But we not only trust the power of Christ, we also trust the identity of Christ. What is Christ? Christ is a title. Christ was not Jesus' given name. Christ was his title, meant Messiah. He was the, the Christ, the Savior of God's people. And this identity is wrapped up as we see the next few verses. He says, truly or amen, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. First of all, notice that much is forgiven. That's the good news here, isn't it? Much is forgiven. In fact, he says all types of sins can be forgiven. Sins, forgiven. Now, it doesn't mean that, hey, he's going to forgive all sins of everybody and every last man, woman, and child that's universalism and it's not taught in Scripture. But we're reminded that no matter what sin you may have committed, pardon the unpardonable sin, every other type of sin will be forgiven. So think of this. Those sins that you think are the worst sins, those sinners that you think have committed those worst sins and you think maybe practically are irredeemable, Jesus says here, they can be forgiven. Of course, that's with the understanding that it's upon repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. He even says blasphemies will be forgiven. This is really kind of alarming or shocking to us that even those who blaspheme may be forgiven. He says here, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter unless they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So here it is. Even one of the other Gospels, if you look at it, says, even words against Jesus may be forgiven. That's amazing. So if you think, hey, I'm ineligible to receive the grace of God because I've done this and this and this and this, remember, Jesus here says that all types of sins and blasphemies, except one, will be forgiven, a believer. 
Well, so he says one sin is what we call unpardonable. You know, we have all kinds of ideas of what the unpardonable sin is, isn't it? Sometimes when we commit what we think is one of the most egregious sins we have committed, we begin to get the idea that God will never forgive me. Some, some of us, it might be that, that we have just blown the trust that somebody else has had in us. For some people, it might be some sexual sin where you think that maybe this is it. This is the unpardonable sin. I can't possibly be forgiven by God. Or maybe some of us think it might be uh, the egregious sins of murder. There are those who have uh, been involved in abortions who think I can never be forgiven. There are those who think that if somebody has been a mass murderer or been involved in genocide, that's the unpardonable sin. But that's not what Scripture says is the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is this, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. What is that? One who should blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Notice the other phrase that's connected to this. Because they were saying, in fact, the word for they were saying is the imperfect tense here, which has the description of they were continuously saying this. This occurs in both verse 22 and verse 30. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem continued to say, He is possessed by Beelzebul. Verse 30, for they were saying, continued to say, He has an unclean spirit. In other words, this continued re reaction, this continued rejection of the identity of Jesus Christ as revealed by the Holy Spirit and His power is the unpardonable sin. And I think here it's intentionally using that imperfect tense to remind us that even that, if you stop that, God will forgive. But if you continue to deny and reject what the Spirit is revealing to you as the power of God in Jesus Christ and his identity as the strong man to conquer wicked, his identity as the one who can forgive sins, his identity as the one who can cast out the demons, if you continue to reject that, there are eternal consequences. You cannot be forgiven if you continue to reject the Spirit's power and testimony that Jesus is the Christ. You know, invariably, you run across folks inside and outside the church who appear to have no assemblage of following Jesus. But they will say, and I've said this to many, they will say, I'm a very spiritual person. In fact, I remember even watching some of the old movies where, where you see somebody that would go to a house and try to testify to or give witness to some neighbor and they're involved in some Eastern mystical religion or something and they'll say, you know, you don't need to come to me. I'm a spiritual person. But John 15, 26 says this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will bear witness about me. This is Jesus saying that. And I said to some of you, next time somebody says to you, I'm a very spiritual person, come back to them and say, so you're all about Jesus? Because that's what the Spirit testifies. The Spirit is testifying. In this particular event in Scripture, He's testifying as to the power of Jesus Christ even over evil. 
He's testifying to the power of Jesus Christ to forgive sins. Scripture says that that power to forgive sins is a power that we should be afraid of. It says in the Psalms that we fear God because he forgives sins. You see, if we reject the identity of Jesus as the Christ, the Savior, the strong man, the forgiver, the redeemer, if we reject him, what happens? There is no hope for us. There is no other Savior. In fact, one of the first things we understand is in Christ alone that I have salvation. In the book of Acts, it says there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. There is nothing else. There's not the gospel of somebody else. It's only Jesus. The identity is there is one Christ, one Lord, and he has the power over all things. He is king. We just sang the song, Jesus shall reign. We don't just sing that because it sounds good. We sing that because it's true. Jesus shall reign. And we trust his word. Here's this little next section. It seems so harsh, doesn't it? Here are his mothers and brothers standing outside. In other words, here he is in this house once again. The house is so crowded they can't even get in the building. Assumedly, maybe they don't have the ropes to lower themselves down through the hole in the roof that's already been uh, there because of those who had had that man let down to be healed by Jesus. And so here it is, they're standing outside, but remember what his family has already said about him. Look with me at verse 20 and 21. Then he went home, the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And now here they are at the door. All this crowd is in there. The critics are saying that he's demon-possessed. His family is saying he's crazy. The crowds are amazed at what he's doing. They're asking the question, could this possibly be the Savior? And they pass the information. You can almost see the picture of the mother and brother standing outside. They say to the person at the door, and the person at the door passes it on, so it gets to Jesus. And they say, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Since he knows all things, he knows that they think he's crazy. And he answers them, who are my mother and my brothers? Well, first of all, when we trust the word of Christ, we come to this idea of bloodlines. Is Jesus saying here that there's no connection, no responsibility, nothing about our families that we should really care about? No. In fact, if you know family ties, you know that they're not ignored by Jesus at all. Even when he's dying on the cross, he's concerned about caring for his mother. And he tells the disciple, John, behold your mother, and to his mother, behold your son. In other words, John, your responsibility is now to take care of my mother. And we know that some of his brothers, at least one of them, James, became a very important figure in the church because after he was resurrected, he began appearing to groups of people and individuals. He appeared to his own brothers. And some of them believed. So he did not ignore his family ties. But we also know that the family of God is identified by faith. He says this, 
Looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my brother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. First of all, a reminder here, this is not just the twelve disciples. This is the crowd that has come around him, probably particularly those that he chose to go up on the mountain with him as his disciples. And then he chose twelve out of those disciples. So this is a larger gathering of people. And he reminds them, anyone there in that group who does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Notice this also. It's not just men. Men and women. The family of God is demonstrated by obedience. It's recognized by faith. We are children of Abraham by faith, Scripture tells us, particularly Romans chapter 4. You can especially focus in on verses 11 and 12. Read that when you get home this afternoon. When you read that chapter, be reminded that when God made that promise to Abraham that you will have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. You ever tried to count the grains of sand on Myrtle Beach? You know that means a lot of, lot of people. It's not because you're going to have all these physical descendants. It's because they're going to have the faith that Abraham had so that God said to him, it is the faith that justifies you. Those who hear the word of God and do it, says Luke in his rendition of this passage. On Saturday, I have the privilege of giving the message at my brother's memorial service in Colorado Springs. I don't know why my sister-in-law chose for it to be so far away from his death. It's now been over a month since he died. But it's given me a lot of time to anticipate having to work on it this week. Notice I haven't finished. I haven't even begun to sit down and think about what I'm going to say. As far as I know, it's going to be mostly family. By family, I mean my extended family. My sisters, my brother's family, my nieces, my nephews, probably some of the in-laws that he had on the other side. I don't know the people that will be there from Colorado Springs. I don't know if there will be other guests that travel from other places. As far as I know, it's going to be mostly my family. But at the same time, I realize that perhaps not all of my family is my family. I have a lot in common with my family. You know, they say if you're, you're an Irwin boy, you have the Irwin knee. I don't know if my boys have it or not. You're generally fairly tall. I'm the shortest of all my cousins. I'm six foot, six one, something like that. All my cousins are taller on my father's side. We all have the heritage of coming from a family of missionaries and pastors. My father was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor for the first 10 or 15 years of his of his adult life. My brother was a pastor. I have one uncle that served on the mission field as a career missionary. He was a doctor. I have another pastor who was a, uh, another uncle who was a pastor his entire life. I, I have guys who were uh, moderators of their presbytery or elders in their churches and all those things. But unless you've professed faith in Jesus Christ and recognized him as Lord and King, So when I preach this message, 
even though I know I have more in common with those who trust the word of God and Jesus Christ as their Savior than I do my own blood relationships. Yet what an opportunity. What an opportunity I have to some in my family that I don't know where they are. I don't know what they believe. I don't know what skepticism they have about Jesus. What an opportunity to stand up in that place and not to say, look at the faith of my brother, but to say, look at the power of Jesus Christ. Not to look at the fact that we're going to be sad from this time forward because we're going to have the joy of eternal life if we rest in Jesus Christ. You see, when we encounter Christ in person, as these individuals did, or as we encounter Christ through the word of God, it should have tremendous impact. I was reminded a few terms ago of a speaker that spoke at one of our political parties' national conventions. It was a religious person. They were at an interfaith service. In that interfaith service, there was a Catholic nun who attacked the central teaching of Christianity that God allowed his son to die as a sacrifice for our sins. She asked the question, is this a God or is this an ogre? Why can't we have interfaith services with Jews and Hindus and Muslims and, and all of those things? Why can't we all just together have together one individual and all be a family together? Well, it's because of this. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus the Christ. There's only one King. The one who has the power even over the devil and his minions. There's only one Christ. The one who has promised to redeem his people. And here it is in this passage. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It doesn't matter what background you came from. It doesn't matter whether you're Baptist, Lutheran, or Methodist, or Presbyterian, or Episcopal, or whatever you are, if you are in Jesus Christ, you trust him for salvation, and you seek to follow him and obey him because you know he is your king and your Lord, then, in the end, we are one family together, the family of God. We cannot compromise. There's no compromising the power, identity, and word of Jesus Christ, but in him, in him, we have the power to, trans, to have our lives transformed and to be a part of the family of God forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we do criticize. Sometimes we are skeptics. Sometimes, Lord, we must come to you and say, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Father, help us to know that you are triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, Spirit who testifies about who Jesus is and about his works and his power and his truth, and Father, creator of all things and the one who originated the plan of redemption. We praise you, we worship you, we serve you. Lord, have your way amongst us that all of our acquaintances 
through our weakness and through our testimony, might know that Jesus is the Christ and the Lord. Amen.